Matthew 6, 19 through 24. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. morning. My name is Kent. If I haven't met you yet, I'd love to in a more personal manner. That's a very impersonal way, but that's my name, so at least you now know my name. Um, I don't know yours, though, if I haven't met you, so uh, please come introduce yourself at some point. Um, And I'm one of the pastors here at Soma. You don't have to raise your hand. Uh, In fact, they tell you to not make people raise their hands. Um, So I'm not going to make you raise your hand. But has anyone felt like the Sermon on the Mount is just a continual punch in the gut like every week. Um, I do. And may, I don't know, maybe it's like I'm getting into it at a level where I'm like I'm just studying it and this is like just really rocking my world. But um, I, I worry about just the sense of like, are people, sometimes like people are just be like, oh, I, just wanna, I don't want to go to Sunday because it's like it's exhausting um, to just feel like I'm having every single part of my life uh, slowly turned over by the Son of God, and found wanting. And so, uh, if that is you, then join me in prayer right now. Uh, Father God, Lord, we are in need of your Spirit, because where the Spirit of you is, there is freedom. Not condemnation, not shame and guilt, not nebulous feelings of, I should be better, or I should try harder but there is freedom. And Lord, you say that your spirit also produces things that produce freedom that surface level feel hard to us. They feel like a, a dying to self. But you promise that there are ways that our fleshly nature, things that we're holding on to, need to die. But as they die, we will find new life. This topic is probably second to few or maybe none in that conversation. So I pray that you would give us a sense of being able to hear without condemnation, without guilt and shame, without a nebulous resolve to do better and try harder. But we could hear this as an invitation to freedom that will take real consideration and will take, and always should take, active change. But that the change will come primarily from being connected to you, not by strengthening our resolve. And it will come and bring life, not death, which we so want to believe is true, but struggle to. I do. I'm assuming many of my brothers and sisters in this room do. And with that, we ask your presence to be here, and we're excited to see what you'll do this morning. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Where do you find happiness? Simple question, fundamental to all of life. Pretty much everyone is asking. Everybody is looking for happiness. In fact, if you want to reduce everything that you're doing, every desire, every motivation, every action or plan that you have, you can reduce it all to the very simple place of you are looking for happiness and you believe that if you have to lose everything, if you can hold on to this one thing, that will bring you happiness. And it can be very difficult to do the self-aware exercise of figuring out what that fundamental thing is, but it's there and it's in everybody. Blaise Pascal, who is a a Christian theologian of, of time past, I think just puts it beautifully in... 
one of my favorite quotes, which is, I say that to a point of comedy, but either way it is, it's true. Uh, I don't have this on the, on the screen for you because I just p added it last second, so listen along. He says this, all men, and consequently women, I think he would include if he were writing this in gender neutral terms, seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. They will never take the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. And so, if that's true, and I believe it is, then every single person, anything that you've wondered with just frustration of how could they do that or how could they think that or how could they say that on some level they're seeking happiness and that's the what they're employing to get there in every action every thought every desire every motive that you've had is to seek happiness even those that seem self-destructive and very much so are Jesus is not going to leave us in the dark of how he is going to ask us to seek happiness. Um, it's already been said, but let's go ahead and dive into it as we get into this text. Verse 19 of Matthew chapter 6 on page 811 in the Black Bible. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. It says do not. A lot of people, a lot of scholars would say maybe a more appropriate translation would be stop. Stop laying up treasures. It, it takes it out of this hypothetical. That could be something that you might struggle with someday and puts it more into an active command. This is something as an assumed reality that everyone is doing. Stop laying up treasures for yourself on earth where moth and rust to seal, or uh, moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Uh, treasure is a fundamental part of what it means to be human. We all treasure something, even children who have no concept of the ability to like store up financial wealth or, or just you know uh, wealth and, and other more investment means, even they will flock to something as a treasure, whether it be a favorite toy right now in my house it is the top toy to get are the power rangers why because marketers figured out that millennials just want the kids to relive their childhood so you know 25 years later or whatever removed we're right back in the power rangers in my house and so that is the top toy and everything else is a consolation you can give all the toys you can have all the cars all the dino trucks which is another whole just philosophical thing to ponder of if, if it's a dinosaur that's a truck or a truck that's a dinosaur. Either way, all the Play-Doh and all of the books do not make up for being the sole possessor of the Power Rangers. They're the treasure. Or even if it's not that, it's like a bedtime item, this that they hold on to, they clutch to as their treasure. All people hold on to some form of treasure from cradle to grave. And Jesus says that these things will disappear. When he talks about moth and rust, that rust, some people argue that actually could be like more vermin. It could be kind of like comparable to the moth. Either way, the point is being made clear that your treasure is slowly decaying or quickly being taken from you. That you cannot keep anything in this world. That whether just through sinfulness of humanity... That people all are desiring happiness, and sometimes the most active way to pursue one's happiness is right over yours, by I take what you have so I can be happy. And so it can happen in a real quick way, or it can happen in more of a slow way. It could happen just through the brokenness of the world, that you open up a closet only to find that moths or louse or some form of vermin have eaten it away. Or if it's just over years and years and years of rust accumulation, the saying is true that you can't take anything with you. Or as another pastor put recently that I find another way to just phrase this is just like at the end of Monopoly, everything goes back in the box. 
everything goes back in the box. And so he's laying out just practical things. And these are actually known realities, even to the original hearers. They had the infancy of banking at that time. And so they had the idea of you could put your money in a place that would save it and preserve it, but it was much less reliable and not really trusted. And so uh, most people just stored their wealth and their possessions in their house. They would hide it in different places in their house. So they realized on some level they have to protect uh, from rust of coined goods or from metal, precious metals. And of course, uh, with paper or fabrics or anything else that could be destroyed by uh, just the uh, destruction of other means, or a fire would mean total destruction of everything they own instantly. And so they have the sense of like, okay, I, we know this is all going away and, and, and our possessions are vulnerable, but Jesus is much more dramatic than that. He's like, no, it's not just vulnerable, they're doomed. Everything you own is doomed to absolute destruction. And so Jesus is simply saying, hey, don't invest in something that is quickly losing its power. Have you seen pictures of people who are burning the former currency of the previous government in which they had loads and loads of cash under some system that overnight is dispossessed of its power? The currency means nothing. It takes more than you can carry in all two arms worth to buy a loaf of bread. And so what do you do? You use it as kindling. It's really disturbing imagery. And it's exactly what Jesus is employing. If you're collecting things of this world, then you are simply collecting that which is part of the old regime, the old government which is getting pushed out. And when it's fully gone, you will have nothing except for to burn all of which you have amassed. Not just the currency, everything that we treasure. Really practical teaching. This teaching more sensible than high heels from Payless. But we don't do it. And why don't we do it? Because there's a disconnect in what is very sensible idea. Hey, I shouldn't store up things in this world because it's all going away. Uh, along with the sense of like, okay, the solution then is to divest myself and invest in a future coming kingdom, one that is already here, but yet is coming in more fullness each and every day. But something breaks down. Verse 21 puts it like this. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is an interesting little piece of philosophy just because it's not distinctly Christian. Like this shows up in every form of thinking. You get this idea. I mean, even today in in a completely secular way of seeing the world, you can hear things from such as the prophet Tyler Durden, possess your possessions or they will possess you. And with that thinking that is prevalent to everyone, what Jesus is getting at is that whatever your treasure is, whatever you are seeking happiness, whatever that foundational thing is, it will control everything about you. It will control everything about you. And this can be money. Of course, just saying treasure is like a weird way of saying it. We don't really talk about treasure. Treasure to us is much more of like a pirate thing. Um, and so we don't really deal in those terms. So this can be money, but I think even more so it's possessions or experiences that we can accumulate or protect with that money. And beyond that, I mean, just to kind of get us all in the game here, because there's some people that are just like, Kent, I don't have any money. Like, I, I am currently, like, living in accommodations with 14 other people, and we all pool our resources to get ramen at the end of the week. And this is, this is how we have decided to live to make it through this stage of our life. But this doesn't have to just be money, possessions, or experiences, though it very often is that, and that probably gets about 95% of us. But it can be, oh, I just think the, the more insidious but very prevalent one is comfort and security. I mean, that's me. 
I did not choose to marry my wife, who challenges me all the time in my spending habits. I would have died with millions of dollars in a house that is consistently at 42 degrees, except in the summer, which it would be whatever the temperature is, and a little bit hotter as it bottles up. And it would be a dark, dark, dark place uh, where I would live off of the cheapest form of electricity or power I could fathom, whether if I thought that was carrying a flashlight everywhere I went just to just function on double A's, then that would have been it. That is just my natural proclivity. I don't know who in my life got to me at the level that they convinced me that I live in the Great Depression, but I believe it with every fabric of my being. I can tell you I do this, and still, if you ask me to spend money, I will waste all sorts of time and energy and anything just to hold on to the literal monetary value of whatever it is. And so that can be the way that you go about this, your treasure, or it could be approval of people. I will trade money uh, or, or just whatever I have to seek general approval from others. It could be reputation closely connected to that. I don't care how much I make at my job. I care how people view me as working at my job or working in my industry or, or giving of myself for this nonprofit. It could be just a, a general sense of personal value. I feel valuable by doing this, by having this, by, by needing this, uh, by having this much or by giving this much. I mean, there's all different ways that we can seek it. Appreciation of others, um, success. I, I don't really care so much about the actual treasure of it. I just care about uh, the vestiges of it. Admiration, uniqueness. You can have a million different motivations. But ultimately, they all result as a common denominator is that they are treasure and they're connected to your heart. And because that's true, there's really easy tests to figure out what these are. A lot of, I mean, I didn't make these up. These are called x-ray questions that people have popularized. The first and foundational test that Jesus is going to lay forward is where does your money flow? Wherever your money flows towards, whether it's by saving to amass comfort or it's spending, where does it spend? Wherever your bank statement shows us what you care about, that is what you care about. I mean, we have, in, in the world today, we have all sorts of aspirational values. I believe people should be like this. They should think this. They should do this. Money has a funny way of showing what is actually your values and what are your aspirational values. What do you think should be true about yourself? You might be able to articulate that. What is actually true of yourself? Money is going to do that every single time. But if you're someone who, like, legitimately, I don't have a ton of money, I don't spend a ton of money, um, you can find it in other ways. What do you worry about? What do you sit there in the shower or that moment before falling asleep if you don't have a headphone in your ear or trying to distract yourself from that thought? What do you think about? What do you worry about? What do you daydream about? If I could have, oh, if only. What if you lost it? devastate you. You can lose anything, but if you lose that, or that's another way to go about it. What would you sacrifice everything else to protect? Whatever you find at the end of that trail of smoke is the fire of which burns the passion and motivation and joy and happiness of your heart. And so, Money is amazingly powerful in figuring this out. And in fact, that's what Jesus is, this, all, this talk in verse 24, where he says, hey, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. I love how he's like, just like talking like theoretically about these two masters. And at the end, he's like, in case you missed it, this is all about God and money. Because you might be sitting there and be like, well, Jesus, actually, I beg to differ. Um, I actually have two direct reports who I work for right now, and I have a side job on that. Uh, and so there's another one right there. And uh, I'm trying to, you know, work for myself and kind of make a business for myself. So in a way, you could say I'm my own boss as well. So I've at least totaled myself up to uh, four bosses right there. Uh, so you can have a couple masters. In fact, it can be amazingly frustrating when you have two people who have contradictory ideas how you're to use your time for the same job. But Jesus ultimately is not talking about corporate America or how your job is structured. But even there, you can truly find out who is the boss of all bosses. 
Because who is the one, if they say it, it trumps all the others. If one of your reports says something that would cut into the ability of you to grow your own business and you say, forget this, I'm doing what I want to do, I'm going into my own business, then being your own boss, that is the real master. Or if you have two direct reports, this guy says something, this guy says the other, and you have to say, like, I, I, I can't do two different things. You have to tell me what to do. Whoever wins that argument, or if neither of them win that argument, and they have to report to somebody else to find out, then that's your actual boss. You only have one. Because when push comes to shove, only one of them will win with how you spend your time, your energy, your resources. So Jesus actually is kind of completely in tune to where we are. And he says that's the truth about money. You can serve God, love God, desire the kingdom of God to come, or you can serve money. Can't do both. No one has managed it in the history of the world. And so I, I would really love to just kind of bring us into this conversation, bring us in practically. Let me tell you this. None of what I'm saying at all is meant to be a guilt trip. It is all meant to just kind of bring us into a common conversation of awareness. I know there's a sense of like, you're just trying to guilt me, you're just trying to get your money. This is not, the final application of this sermon will not be, so now we're going to pass the baskets of offering. Like, this is not geared towards like, okay, now we want to do these awesome things by giving to this church. This is all geared on you freeing yourself, and then I don't care what you do with it. I really don't. And so this is not sense of a guilt trip. This is not trying to build up credibility for, or, or trying to build up uh, just momentum and shame for what, how we can harness your resources. This is simply an invitation for freedom. So let's jump into it. So uh, one billion, just studies have shown, one billion people in the world today, out of like, I don't know, 7.5, 8, I'm, I'm not up on my current population numbers, but it's somewhere in that neighborhood. Of one billion of them uh, live on less than a dollar a day. Most people know that. It's not too much of a crazy stat. You might be unfamiliar with exactly the number that it is now, but you know that there's a good chunk of people in this world living on less than a dollar a day. Three billion live on less than three dollars a day. And so we can just kind of take ourselves in the place of a global place of, of wealth, of about half the world lives on essentially 7 to $21 or less a week. And we can safely say that all of us coming into this room, I'm assuming, and pretty much everyone living in this country, is living on far more than that. And if you want to just total up real quick, you probably came in a car. Even if you're a person who like, doesn't own a car, you do it for personal preferences, and you use tr public transportation, particularly on a rainy day, to get here. And so you're utilizing a car on some level. Um, you typically are eating food, and you're eating food at your own discretion. So last week we talked about fasting. Maybe some of you chose to fast this week, but that was your choice. Um, and there are, I mean, I actually heard someone in an MC discussion, they said that like, somebody actually just brought up the point of like, hey, what about fasting if you literally can't? Like if you're too poor to eat? And uh, that's actually a really great question. Didn't have time. There's a whole section of fasting that we, we want to come back to when we get to the spiritual disciplines uh, series later on. Uh, of just fasting to have uh, solidarity with the poor. Uh, but either way, so uh, food, you can eat, you ate breakfast, you'll eat lunch, um, no matter how extravagant that is. You'll eat at restaurants. Some of them will probably be quite nice. You'll drink an endless array of designer coffee uh, from an endless array of identical coffee places um, with very unique names. And uh, you'll buy clothes. Um, most of you will be able to own several, several outfits, or at least the ability to combine with uh, different pairs of pants and different uh, shirts. Uh, you'll own multiple pairs of shoes. That's a huge thing uh, in the world. Um, you'll have entertainment options, whether that be uh, Netflix or even just going out for sporting events or, or uh, conferences or other things of events, to, like just experience social life um, or to experience entertainment personally. Uh, tech. Probably most of us, I'm very few of us in the room don't have a cell phone of any sort. Now, you might be more curmudgeonly about your view of technology and have tried to, like, stick to the flip phone, um, in which case I applaud you, um, but you're still in our category. So uh, you'll probably have assorted uh, uh, tech items that go beyond that, such as laptop, otherwise, uh, you know, computers, televisions, uh, watches, uh, tablets, um, all it kind of goes on and on, or just hobby items things that I have, like, I, I'm, you know, like, I, if you're a biking enthusiast, or bicycling enthusiast, I like to have, like, the, a couple different bikes, or, or this amount of, like, ability to work on bikes, and these kind of tools, or if you're into 
I know, disc golf, or if you're into home decor, of uh, just like I have like this many different seasons of how I can switch out the room, not just like for, I, I want to decorate for Christmas, but like this is winter now, and these are my winter pillows, and, uh, and that's, that's fine. Uh, uh, none of these things are actually bad, but we just want to realize that Jesus is talking to us this morning. Even if you have those things but didn't pay for it. Like, hey, I got a phone, but I don't pay for any of it. Uh, right now, I'm just, like, trying to get through school. I mean, eventually, you probably will have the means to pay for that, which is why you're taking on debt. You're taking on debt because you'll eventually have the means to pay it off. But even if you just are connected to someone who has the ability and is willing to pay it for you, the rest of the world doesn't have that. It's not just that they don't have it. They're not connected to anyone who has it. And so we, we just have to recognize we live in a really unique place in time and history. And in church history, there was a fundamental shift of when all of a sudden Christianity not only became no longer illegal in the Roman Empire, but actually the national religion, the state religion of the Roman Empire, the entire known world all of a sudden was told, you are Christian. Before that, to be a Christian was to be persecuted, be constantly under the threat, though not many of them had to be martyrs, uh, just historically, that many of them had to commit all the way to that. But you just always had that threat of if somebody outed you, you could be martyred. Often, sometimes you had to have a certificate to say, I sacrificed at the pagan temple before you could buy in the market. And so some Christians had to deal with the fact of like, do I sacrifice or do I get a falsified certificate or do I figure out other means of supporting myself than buying in the public market? And so there was just never this sense of like, okay, you're getting into Christianity, but you're getting into it for the wrong reason. All of a sudden it becomes the national religion of the Roman Empire. And for the very first time, I, I, I mean, a minister, the reason that we have the word minister, by the way, I mean, it, it's close to the word administration, is because when, when all of a sudden the Roman Empire, when you were a priest or, or a minister of the people, yes, you came and you provided religious services and you helped people uh, uh, gr- create a place where they could know and understand the God who made them. And also, you had to administer just between like people showing up, be like, hey, this person stole my cow. They say they didn't sell my cow. You have to administer justice here. And so all of a sudden, to become a priest was no longer just this service of like uh, to a people who, like Christianity at, to that point, basically only spread amongst women, slaves, and children because it was only attractive to people who had nothing to lose. And so all of a sudden now, you could become a priest and you could like use that as a stepping stone to step up in government. You could figure out like, hey, I could do this and and now I can get power and I can get people behind me and everybody else is doing it. And so all of a sudden, the Christian church looked around and said the the most difficult thing that has come out of all this is now we have to constantly struggle with are we in this for the fact that who else has the words of life? Or are we in this because there's something to gain? And in little, little ways, that's eroded in our society. There's, there's less social clout of being a proclaimed and devout Christian. But it's a long ways to go to the other end of that hill. There's still a lot just through sheer numbers and sheer tradition that we have to wrestle with that question too. Because Christians for the first time all of a sudden got introduced into first world problems. You know, I, I, you know, I mean, just first world problems, the kind of the phenomenon of just like, you know, people like saying things that are like problematic only if you have so much money and stuff, they actually become like, it's just the sense of like, oh, I can't even park my car in my garage because it's full of all my stuff. And uh, that's a problem in some ways, but that's a problem that some people would die to have. And, and so it's a very necessary critique of our lives. But you know, the number one problem in first world problems is you have to figure out what to do with wealth. All of a sudden, you have to figure out where is my heart allegiance really lie? So, 
question, Kent. What do we do? What is the application? Because, uh, I, I mean, basically, if you're just like drawing off what I'm saying, like maybe you're like, okay, you're going to go extreme. Like, should we own nothing? We should like literally like live check to paycheck maybe, or just day to day, uh, or just take the advice of Jesus to the rich young ruler. Take all your possessions, give them to the poor, and come follow me. That's Bible. We can quote that and say, like, here's your application point. See you next week. Maybe some of you who can get here with no transportation. And we could go that route. Or you could just go um, the constant lifelong sentence of guilt, like I'm going to continue to live somewhat in the, my social class and, and what I'm used to, but I'm just always going to have these sermons or these moments where I just all of a sudden kind of like have to examine feeling guilty about it. It's like Schindler's List theology, which if you haven't seen Schindler's List, um, not to spoil too much of it for you, but it's again been like close to a quarter decade on that one, so, uh, or a quarter century, I mean, a uh, quarter decade, yeah, you know, either way, I mean, you've had like almost 25 years. Um, either way, uh, you, so Schindler is just trying to steal people out of the Holocaust and he's like taking all of his money and liquidating it and trying to get more and more Jews free from the Holocaust. And at the end of the movie, he's sitting there and looking at his watch and he says, this watch, like curse this watch. I, I could have sold this watch and that could have saved five more lives. And so there's this, there's this war theology of just like, hey, we got to melt down the silver for bullets when you're in the midst of a war. And so everything should liquidate. Everything should liquidate and feel guilty about whatever we keep. Not my point today. In fact, I want to reinstitute something that was said last week. Everything that we've talked about to this point is good, made by God, for you to enjoy and to worship him. Everything we've talked about, whether it be money or experience or food or, or design. I mean, I'm down for the coffee. Take all the minerals out of the water and then re-enter complementary minerals. And I will pay the extra $3 for whatever that, and 20 minutes for you to make it, for that to be a part of my life. Because I, I, I'm down for these things. And they were made that we would enjoy them and worship God. I mean, that's essentially one of the key points that the writer of Ecclesiastes gets to. You've been given everything and you've been given to worship God, to enjoy it, to see him as good. Every night before we go to bed in my house, not me and my wife, but my, my, my sons, we sit down and we just say, hey, what were you thankful for to, from today? And they're very in-the-moment thinkers, so sometimes you have to remind them of a couple examples of like, hey, were you thankful when this friend came over, when you went to that birthday party, when you got that present for your birthday? Were you thankful for that? Are you thankful for that book you're holding right now? Hey, yes, I'm thankful. And then say, hey, God, thank you for this. And just trying to rehearse gratitude in our hearts. I mean, Jesus, his first miracle was making water into wine when a party ran out of wine. I mean, we just have to realize that Bible verses were spent on communicating that to you. The, all the power in the universe, and how am I going to go with my breakout miracle? I'm going to keep a host of a wedding from embarrassment so they don't have to shut down early by creating really, really good wine. I mean, the, the person who just came and said, like, why didn't you bring this out first? This is the best stuff. Jesus is not going to say or live in any way to live under a guilt for everything that you consume mentality. In fact, if you, if you hold that view and are calling it Christian, you're off. There's nothing Christian about guilting yourself about everything. In fact, there's nothing really Christian about holding guilt and condemnation and shame over your head for your entire life, too. But that's another sermon when we go through Romans. Jesus is ultimately concerned about the heart. I mean, Proverbs are going to talk about having savings. That's not ultimately sinful. It's going to talk about accumulating wealth. All these things are right and good, but constantly throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to say, hey, I, I'm concerned about the heart. I'm concerned about how you are relating to money and how you are possessed by your own possessions. And so, I mean, I, I've seen this enacted by just like really wealthy Christians. I mean, the early church was also full of wealthy Christians who, when they met in homes because they couldn't get public places, I mean, they tend to go to the wealthiest Christian's house because they had the largest home. And the Bible's going to talk about all these sort of wealthy people who can constantly enter the kingdom of heaven, and not every single one of them is told to em empty themselves of all their possessions. And I've seen, like, just people who own, like, mansions. I mean, like, 
with multiple pools and like in-house jacuzzis with TVs, give them completely over. They have no sense of like holding on to it and maintaining the value, but they're just regularly giving them over to nonprofits and Christian organizations and churches and just saying like, hey, if you know anybody who can use my house, who can use my wealth, who can use what I have, then give them my number. And when you do, that person can actually call them and they actually pick up and they actually say, yes, come and use the house at your dispense. I have no desire to hold on to my cars and my collections as that being my own. I've seen people live that way. It's compelling. It's beautiful. But I want to just present a few ways forward because I'm assuming that's not most of us or might not be most of us or even if it is, I think there's some ways really tangible to move forward of what we do. First, consider the cost and danger of wealth. So the Sermon on the Mount is all about the heart. How does your heart relate to wealth? But haven't you noticed Jesus is never at the heart at expense of the action? He's always going to say, hey, here's what your heart should be like. And now that your heart is in the right place, now do this. So I want you to have the right heart of not being possessed by your possessions. And then his literal words are, hey, don't store up stuff here. But store up stuff in the kingdom where it cannot be destroyed. And so I do think there is a call not to go off the deep end of those other theologies of constant guilt, constant shame, living on nothing. Maybe God calls you that. I don't know. And he has called people to that. And I think it's actually a really beautiful call. But to actually consider, is there a cost to either I don't have wealth now and accumulating it in the future, or I do have wealth now and I need to divest myself of it for investment in the kingdom of God? couple reasons for this. Luxury has a creep factor. Yeah? I mean, when, when my wife and I first, we got married right out of college. I, I would love to see our tax returns from that year. I mean, I don't know what we made. I think it was joint. We both had, could find only part-time work. We graduated out of the recession, by the way. Uh, really joyful time to step into the workforce. Um, and so out, both outside of our degrees, we found like just part-time work. Mine was a substitute teacher, so if they called me, um, you know, I had the joy of potentially making up to $62 a day. Um, of, in some ways, being overpaid of just sitting in a room. Uh, but either way, uh, I, I, we have this, I don't know what we made, but we just, our grocery budget was starting out legit $15 a week. You can get that at Aldi, by the way. It's mainly empty carbs, but you can get $15 a week, and you can at least not be hungry. And uh, we did date night. We decided, hey, we're going to do date night from uh, day one. Also, it was $15 a week, so we usually, like, made a meal at home and then maybe went ice skating, but, like, shared the pair of ice skates. And, uh, and so, you know, we, we just figured out ways of just, like, hey, uh, everyone said, like, you know, date night is cheaper than marriage counseling. So, like, hey, have something and, and have it sacred and let it be date night. Um, we had no tech. We had no Wi-Fi in our house. Happy times at the Livingston household. Um, now, I mean, we, we have smartphones. I have an Apple Watch. I, I love this watch. I, I mean, man, this was a gift, but it doesn't matter. I am, I am bought into buying a replacement for this no matter how many times I have to replace this thing. I this thing is amazing in what it can do and how much it gets me off of my phone and actually back into the eye contact of my family. And I just got to realize, man, luxury has had a creep. Our date night budget far exceeds uh, sharing ice skates. You know, our, uh, we've slowly gotten to the point where we can buy groceries, um, not always from Aldi. If it, like, there's a point, if Aldi doesn't have it, we can't eat it. And, uh, and sometimes we can go across to the, the mire and then pick up a couple things, and we can even do Whole30. And now I'm to the point where it's like we realize, hey, like eating pure empty carbs actually might be sh- cheap in the short run, but not really uh, is actually, um, you know, surgeries actually cost a lot. And uh, so, you know, you got to do something with that. Um, and so there is ways to think about your wealth and even like, okay, where do I spend now? Just, but, but constantly just thinking to the fact that luxury has a creep. And there's things that I have now that I am less willing to divest myself of in the future. And I just wish we would have, as a culture, a sense and a knowledge of the cost of wealth. We'd be like Bill Watterson. Anyone know Bill Watterson, his claim to fame? 
piece of the resistance of comic history, Calvin and Hobbes. Calvin and Hobbes is shown in art museums as just being overall a general work of art and social criteria and commentary. I mean, it's, it is a pound for pound the most beneficial and, and edifying and life-giving comic strip that I've ever read. And uh, Bill Watterson was just a known reclusive. Like, there's only two known photos of him. He would never ground interviews. He'd never take photos. And, and he was syndicated, like most comic strips at that time, around the world. And so the syndicates want to say, hey, we want to license this into products that people can buy. They can buy little Calvin and Hobbes, and you can get a decal of young Calvin urinating onto the logo or word of your choice and put it on the back of your truck. And, and as compelling as that was to Bill Watterson, he said no to all of it. He said he would not take any licensing at all. And the syndicate actually said, we actually have the power to remove you and give somebody else your comic strip. And so he said after five years of them threatening, he actually said okay. And he said, you can remove me. Because he said, if I lose what I'm doing this for, if I lose what I love about this comic strip by you buying it away from me, then, then it's not worth having anymore. At one point, people actually made like a mock-up of a Hobbes doll and sent it to him, saying like, look how cool this could be. And he set it on fire and sent it back. He was so punk rock. And, and he said, most people were arguing with their syndicates to get more, more money, more acclaim. I was arguing to get less because he realized that having wealth has a cost and he wasn't willing to pay it. I have no clue if he had that for Christian principles. I just wish as a Christian community, as a church, we would constantly be evaluating, am I more or less content now that I have more stuff? Is there a doorway to contentment that doesn't look like accumulating more insurance on the things that I have, but divesting myself of some of the things that I have? So that's actually just another thing to consider. Not just the danger of wealth and divesting yourself, and maybe that's the only way to kill your flesh, is to literally get rid of some things, uh, but to consider everything you have and why you have it. Now, not today. That's, I mean, that's like, I can only imagine just like, wow, this week? Holy cow. Um, and you're like, I don't know, like making some crazy inventory of your basement and garage. Um, it's just over time asking yourself, why do I have this? Why do I want this? Why am I buying this? Why do I ensure that? Why do I think about that? Why do I take that vacation? Again, knowing that these are all right and good, and the right answer you might come to is saying, hey, this is a needed time for my family and I to rest to enjoy the God who made us. This is something that we all get around. I mean, this is something that actually gets me out of my phone and into eye contact again. That's worth every penny for me. So there's real reasons to even own luxurious things. But just doing the question, the hard work of why. And then asking myself, could I give more of it up? Maybe I just experiment. I'm used to taking these two vacations every year. I'm going to experiment. I might still take the time off and find a way to do like a really low-cost option, but I'm just not going to go on the second cruise. I'm going to take that money, and I'm going to give it away. And, and maybe after that year, you're like, that was a horrible idea. And, and whatever, you return. You're like, I actually really needed, there was something about that I needed to, to just be able to decompress, to turn off. But maybe you realize, man, that was the most life-giving thing. Like, more life-giving than going on that cruise was me investing in the lives of a human being. Investing in the kingdom of God. Of being made rich in the kingdom to come. Maybe you try that with some of your possessions, some of your monthly subscriptions. Just like, hey, I'm just going to shut it off for a month and give that money away. And just see what it's like. I know you have the temptation to be mad at me on this. This is between you and God. I'm not going to like sit here, out here, watch the cars that roll in, and judge if you took this teaching seriously or not. I'm having to do this too. I'm, we're actually in budget season for SOMA, and my family's applying for a raise. We're applying for a raise because school's starting. We have some expenses that we're just not going to be able to cover at our currently, current salary. Everybody should have to prepare a sermon for store not possessions on earth but in heaven the week you were uh, requesting a raise. It is, um, it is good for your soul. And it is good for the amount that you will eventually request. And it will make you just think like, hey, do I need that? 
Can I sacrifice that? Because here's the real thing. You're not sacrificing anything. I mean, that was Jesus' point to his disciples who showed up and said, like, hey, uh, like, we've given up. Like, the rich young ruler walks away after having given, like, saying, I can't give up everything and follow you. And they show up, and they're like, you know, like, <laughs> Peter, like, shows up. And be like, actually, Jesus, let's talk about how we've given up everything. Let's talk about how we are nailing that. High fives around. And right before they go to give Jesus the high five, he actually doesn't raise his. And he says, well, here's the thing, guys. You haven't sacrificed anything. Everything that you've been given, you will receive in the kingdom of heaven. I mean, that's what, that's what he's saying. Hey, invest in the kingdom of heaven where you will have it eternally. Now, people actually miss the application of that all the time. And here's how they do it. Because they think of the kingdom of heaven as a distant eternal reality. But if you've been here at all, you know that Matthew is a Jew writing to Jews, and he actually uses the word heaven as basically the same interchangeable word as God. And he says, hey, Invest in the kingdom of God, who is very much so here in the present, in the now. I mean, I was doing this like uh, just a couple weeks ago during the NCAA tournament. My neighbor, who's a Purdue grad, when they played Butler as, I, as my alma mater, we decided to make a jersey bet, which whosever team wins, the other person has to buy them a jersey number and size and, and you know, style of their choice. I did this for two reasons. One, I was like, you know what, if I make that bet with him, we'll be able to watch the game together. I've been trying to invite him to church constantly, and it'd be a great opportunity just to, like, spend time, and, like, he's going to think it's fun. I mean, he bets on everything. Um, he's going to, like, think this is fun. If he comes to church now, I hope he does not listen to this podcast. And uh, either way, I also made the bet because I really thought we were going to win, and I thought I was going to get a Butler jersey. And so it wasn't pure motives, but at least at this point, I thought when I actually did have to shell out uh, the outrageous amount for Purdue jerseys. Those should be discounted. Um, <laughs> that I was just like, well, you know, at least, at least I will receive 100 jerseys in heaven. And I thought that what could be really funny is if God actually gave me 100 Purdue jerseys in heaven. And I'd be like, this, is, this was a, I did not catch that clause. And, uh, <laughs> but I would take them over 100 IU jerseys any day. Um, I, I actually don't even think this. I'm just trying to stir up dissension um, because that's what pastors should do. And <laughs> either way, it's a wrong way of seeing this. A right way is this. When you invest, you're not investing in internal reality. You're investing in now. Dallas Willard puts it really beautifully and he puts it like this. But the treasure we have in heaven is also something very much available to us now. We can and should draw upon it as is needed. For it is nothing less than God himself and the wonderful society of his kingdom, even now interwoven into my life. And this is not the by and by, but now. What is most valuable to any human being without a regard to an afterlife is to be a part of this reality, God's kingdom now. If I had to choose between good credit with the bank and good credit with God, I would not hesitate for a moment. By all means, let the bank go. What he's saying is to invest into a human, to invest in the kingdom, to invest in saying, I'm going to not spend on myself, but I'm actually going to spend as much or more on others, is a way of being rich in God and finding that God comes near to you. I mean, so many people are like, God is so distant. God, I can't feel his presence. But yet, not only do we spend no time of our week actually trying to seek his presence, we also amass it with all this stuff. And he says, hey, do you want to invest in my kingdom? Do you want to invest in where I'm at? Then divest your investments of this world and put them into my kingdom. Don't seek to buy little sponsorship plaques on things that are eventually going to burn, but sponsor things in the kingdom. And that's not just internal reality. That is a way that some of you might feel God near to you. Not because he was waiting for you to do the right thing, because he said, hey, this has always been the pathway to come near in my presence. That I am always near. And those who will feel my nearness are those who are not storing up treasures in this life, but investing into the kingdom of heaven, which is at hand. Another translation is here now. So, while I would love to apply more, maybe the best application that we could do at this time is communion. Because communion was, I mean, this was just one of the times when 
when people realize, hey, I, I, I'm coming to identify with a murdered Messiah who has no social clout at once upon a time, who has, you know, is at anything viewed by people who don't know his story and know what he came to do as a criminal, but I don't care because I'm seeking to give up everything to come near to him. And the act of communion was that for people. And so if you're here and you're a Christian, you believe that, that you are saved not by you giving money away, but by the God who has saved you and therefore given you freedom to give things away, then come and take of communion. And there'll be stations around the room to break off bread, dip it into the cup. If you're here and you're not a Christian, then stay in your seat and don't feel weird about it because uh, we want you to, to, to wrestle with those realities and... and and not feel weird about not coming a part of this family ceremony. But if you want to be a part of the family because you do believe these things, then come talk to us. Come get prayed for. There'll be people to pray for you or anyone else who may be struggling with this reality in their heart on this other side of the pipe and trade. Let's pray. Father God, I pray for you to give us a spirit of freedom. Again, not guilt, not condemnation, not a, a nebulous idea of trying harder and being better, but a place where we actually see this is the pathway to life and freedom. It's why you said it in one of your most important teachings that you ever gave, because you wanted to emphasize just the sense that, that life isn't the f- found the place that we think it's found. And there's some things bringing us life that honestly we could give up and invest into another place in your kingdom and find much more life there. Lord, let us question whatever that might be. Whatever that might be. Not for the sake of earning your salvation. We already have it in full. But the sake of experiencing your kingdom in our lives now. And the sake of being a part of bringing the kingdom to other people's lives. It's really compelling. I pray the tangibles and the application of how to get that worked out might get talked about, discussed, and ideas might be exchanged that we didn't have time for. But regardless, we would have hearts that would seek to do this, and we wouldn't be satisfied until we have. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.